Hey, how you doing? Welcome to the Fell Pony Podcast. My name's Tom Lloyd, and it's really lovely to have you here again. On today's show, we're talking about one of the very oldest Fell Pony studs with a legacy as long as your arm. The Linnell stud has been in the Charlton family for five generations, with each generation making their mark in the Fell Pony world. So I would like to introduce Sarah Charlton, who has been around the Linnell ponies in one way or another for the last 45 years. Sarah, how are you doing? Oh, quite canny, thank you, Tom. Very good. Uh, any sign of spring yet? Yes, lots of aconites and snowdrops, yes. I'm very glad to say I've got more hay in the barn than I usually have at this time of year. Oh, well done. Yeah. I started feeding earlier and I've, I've had to buy more, so well done. Canny. Well, not long now till it's all over. Yeah. I've had enough of this one. So look, as I said in the introduction, the Linnell stud has been around for, is it five generations, I think it is? Five generations, yes. Yeah, and you're known, I think, all the way down for breeding performance ponies. Yes. There are so many threads we could talk about today, and it kind of like, where do you start? I think you would describe yourself as a lowland breeder, but you do have some fell rights. So for anyone who hasn't been to one of your camps or performance trials. Can you describe the setup at the Linnells and you know how it all works? Well, we are lowland, but not arable land. We have sheep grazing mainly. It used to be farmed. Now, since Bob's died, we grass park it. So that's all sheep. And we retain about 80 acres for hay and the ponies during the summer. And then in the middle of the winter, ponies graze extensively on the grass parks while they're empty so which works out really quite well. Am I right in thinking you've got a bit of fell or uh, an enclosure up at um, Housesteads on the Hadrian's Wall somewhere? A bit further west than that over about the highest um, point of the wall it's um, on Melkridge Common. If you stand on the trig point just above it you can see the Solway and you can see the North Sea on on a fine day. So we have about 120 acres up there in two enclosures. It has the Pennine Way going all the way through, so we can't, even though they're enclosures, we can't run a stallion there. And it is white land and then comes down to a quite a peaty slack. But we uh, quite often run a group of youngsters up there, you know, two-year-old, three-year-olds. It, it gets their footing right, um, does them good. Uh, and they do they do well, but I've only once wintered ponies up there, and it was pretty harsh. So how many ponies do you have? How many mares do you have at the moment? Uh, ooh, about eight. But at the present time, we tend to breed just every other year from them rather than every year. So maybe two or three foals a year. And then there's, of course, the young stock followers, the ridden ponies. So in all, we usually average about 20 in the herd. That's the thing, isn't it? When you've got mares that are with stallion and in foal and working ponies, it very quickly builds up, doesn't it? Yes, yeah. yes, it does. And then you have the argument because someone's riding a pony and you say, well, actually, we need to breed a foal from it. Well, I've done all that work. Um, now you want to take the pony away from me. That's it, exactly. You get too attached to them. I know. You do. I know. It's yeah. all the same old problem. Yeah, no favourites. That's the way. OK, so let's go right back to start, Sarah. Did you grow up with ponies? I did, yes. My first pony, I think, was retired to us at the when I was about three. And he was an old pit pony that had become a 
the local tinker's pony, and he was 36 when he came to me. And I just, you know, I just was a pony to sort of play with. He lived till he was 42, which was a good age. A local farmer lent um, me a Welsh pony, who was the one that taught me to ride because I was always falling off, so I had to learn to a bit of stickability. And then I got a Park Dales um, as a youngster. Why my parents bought me a youngster, I have no idea, but we then grew up together. I had no formal riding education at all, but with a few friends, we used to disappear all day, all day on our ponies during the summer. Never seemed to rain in those summers. We used to swim in the river and get lost and trespass over all the local farms. It was wonderful. And then I didn't get a formal education with horses until, oh, my late teens. I was a working pupil with Elaine Straker for a year, which was very hard work, where I got my qualifications, riding instructor and BHS stage four, which then sort of took me on. Interesting that you had Dales all the way back there as well. We'll come on to that later. So at what point did you first get involved with the fell ponies? In my early 20s, I had a gap year where I, I took off and I spent a whole year in Australia. I'd also trained to be um, a cook, so I cooked and rode horses all round Australia. I had the most wonderful year. I think the term is Jillarooing. And on my return, a rare phone call to my mother. No social media back then. I, she said, what are you going to do when you get back? And I said, no idea, but I'd like to spend Christmas at home. Find me a job. And on my return, the next day, I had an interview with, with Roy, who at that time had no idea he'd become my father-in-law. And that day was the first day I saw a field full of black ponies. And I was actually quite taken aback. And I can remember saying to him, how do you tell the difference between them all? (laughs) (laughs) And then it went on from there. I worked for him for that winter and then I continued working for him part-time for about four or five years. This is the mid-1970s, late 70s, is it? Late 70s, 80s. um, I was about to leave at one point and then he decided he had a dispersal sale in 1981. So asked me to stay on and prep ponies for that. But then I rented a cottage from him for quite a number of years after that, before I married Bob. So I was always there helping him or what have you. And it's some heritage, isn't it, the Linnells? So we, we need, maybe we should go through that now, actually, because it, 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 it can get a little bit complicated. I've been working my way through it. So this was with Roy Charlton. Yes, my father-in-law. Yeah, so you married Roy's son, Bob Charlton. Bob, yeah. Now, Roy's, Roy's father, who was also Roy, but he was Roy Bertram Charlton. Bertram Charlton. And he wrote uh, the book, A Lifetime with Ponies, which if anybody hasn't read, you must go out and read it. We'll come to that as well. There's, there's so much to talk about there. And then Roy Bertram's father was also had the same name as my husband, Robert Blackett Charlton. 
So the confusing thing is they're all R.B. Charltons. Yeah, that's right. So, <laughs> so going back, the original R.B. Charlton, I think you told me he lost a leg at 17 and lived to be 101. Was that the right one? He, he did, indeed, yes. And he was one of those people, if you said, who would you like to sit next to at dinner? I would like to sit next to him and hear about him. And his son, um, who wrote the book, uh, quite amazing man. I mean, they both worked very hard in Newcastle and then accumulated all this land and the love of ponies. And of course, because he was always called Grump, Grump, who lost his leg at the age of 17, he couldn't ride a horse, so he needed a driving pony to get him to the train so he could get to work in Newcastle. And initially it was Hackney's, and then I think he had a favour slightly for Dale's, and it was then Grandpa Roy who became really involved with the fell ponies. So the original Robert, he had Hackney's, he had Fells and Dales. Dales. I made so many notes out of this from the book, actually. So where do I start? He was looking for small, fast trotting ponies, as you said, to get to the train station three miles away. Yeah. I I noted also he was um, one of the founding members of the Dales Pony Improvement Society. I found an article back from 1917, I think. But that would be Roy, uh, that would be Grandpa Roy, not Grump. Ah, okay. There we go. Yes, yeah. And the note I made was, um, at the time, a good Dales pony could trot a mile in three minutes, going at a minimum of 20 miles an hour without braking. Yeah. Now, again, which Roy is this? You made. I made some notes. You said that when he was 17, he'd go out and count the ponies, and he would give up at 100. That was my father-in-law sent out by his father, go out and count the ponies, and he gave up at 100. And they, uh, so it was a hobby and a passion, but also they were providing um, uh, ponies for milk floats. Um, The coal board had 30 or 40 milk floats at the time. Yes. He didn't sell ponies to go down the mine. He didn't sell pit ponies. But I think people forget there were a lot of ponies used above ground. And in Northumberland, particularly um, on the coastal plain, they owned the coal board and mine owners owned the land above ground so they were big farms and a lot of dairy farms which supplied the milk to all the surrounding areas so they had a lot of milk floats and he was sent there to count the ponies and check them out i think there were over 30 Something yes, like that. I, th- I think that's. I, I think thirty or forty was a note I made, yeah. and, and also there were employees of pet ponies for the lead mines, um, taking lead from Alston over to the Tyne, forty yeah. miles away. Yes. And again, the, uh, the note I made: twenty loose-headed ponies with one mounted man. I don't think the pack ponies were travelling then. Certainly, we have a pack horse trail that comes right through our farmyard, and that would have been used from the smelting up the Devil's Water from us here. Um, where there's still quite a lot of evidence and they the lead would have come over from Allendale and then this way and then down to the stays on the Tyne. And we ride the old Packles trails around here often. And there's something else I picked up here which I'd never really thought of it in this way before but again mentioned in the book that the Dales ponies were known on the east of the Pennines and the fell ponies were known on the west of the Pennines. So the book was written in 1940 and he yeah. was also referring to his recollections, I think, from when he was younger. 
So the, when when the ponies were brought into gathered, there would be an umpire to decide who owned a disputed pony at a gathering. Uh, <laughs> how things have moved on yes, a little bit. I think that's right. So that when they uh, all got together and gathered, and of course there was no microchipping or anything like that then. So um, there was an umpire to um, decide whose pony was whose. So they didn't come to an argument. I'm sure there were a few arguments. Uh, <laughs> um, now, when it uh, came to breeding, again, just going back to going back to um, what Roy was saying in the 1940s, he was he said work to one type all the time, and if that mare is the type you are aiming for, always make sure you have at least one daughter to take her place in the stud. It's something I do myself. I just wondered, you've obviously picked up ways of breeding, what you're looking for, and plans, and how much has that changed? Do you think over the years at the Linnell Stud? I think we tried to always produce the performance ponies. I certainly have two lines that I can trace back to Flora, who is in the Black Book, and she was foaled in 1902. And from that, those two particularly, they are very active lines. But we did lose a lot of lines um, in the 80s when my father-in-law sold a lot of ponies. When Bob and I in, um, took over the stud, there was literally... The old stallion, little Romney boy, and one mare, Connie, and a barren mare, and I had little Mozart. So we had to refound the stud, which in this this day and age with social media would have been really quite easy. And we managed to collect two lines back. And then we went and bought Sledell Ruth from Sylvia McCosh at Delmain. And... I would say that she was very much a sort of founding mare, refounding mare um, of the stud, which produced sort of a different line. And I was also very luckily gifted a Dean pony by Ailey Newell, who was very much a mentor of Bob's and mine. She was a wonderful help. And that line too, which is, you know, so I have three three very different types of line here now, but all very performance ponies as well as working ponies, I hope. I'm still working my way through the notes from the book, actually. I'm going to keep going because there's so many interesting things in here. This is a really good line I I read, that Roy had seen the sports of people in many counties, but no sport I have ever seen compares with horse breaking. I thought that was really interesting, actually. To call it a sport? Yeah, uh, and it also occurs to me you can tell a horseman, a good horseman, by the way he handles his young stock. And I thought that, I thought that was really interesting, actually, because that, that tells a lot about the kind of um, man he was and the kind of attitude he was and the kind of temperament he had. And I think that kind of works its way down through the ponies and through the generations of ponies as well. I think um, it's, it's, it is, comes out in a sort of approach. Are you born with it? I don't know, but because certainly Bob... And my father-in-law, and I presume grandfather-in-law, all were incredible horsemen. And bear in mind that quite often when they worked their ponies, they did it before they went to work in the morning. They got up very early in the morning and worked their ponies. Yes, admittedly, they had quite a bit of help. So when they left, that someone sorted things out for them. But they, Grandpa Roy did a lot of the breaking of his ponies first thing in the morning before he went to work. 
and he must have had just that empathy. Is it empathy that you would have with them, that you work with them? I think that's right. And and interesting you say, are you born with it? I don't think you have to be born with it at all, but I think um, it, it's possibly how you're learning from your mentors, whoever they are, isn't it? it you know, and you know, if you learn to go in quietly, then you go in quietly and you have that manner. Yes, you, you have that manner. Maybe you're right, yes, you can, a, a good mentor will teach you how to approach a youngster so that it doesn't get the upper hand and it thinks you're strong, but you're not actually being strong and that you are kind to it, that you're its friend rather than brute force. For me, it is probably the most important bit that that two or three weeks after weaning, get the pony in. And like you say, you've got to be, it feels like you're in charge, but you're just such a, such a light touch. There's quite some interesting stuff about feeding ponies actually, because you know, the way we feed ponies is very different now, I think. Two feeds of corn a day, as well as hay, is cheaper and better for the ponies than hay only. The difference of feed, though, when I first um, went to the Linnells, father-in-law was still just feeding rolled oats. Nothing else. Rolled oats and hay, and that was even to the hunters. Um, he was quite horrified when I introduced um, certain other things. And you think how we've progressed now to we buy all these mixes and if you go out and try and find some rolled oats, it wouldn't be easy. You wouldn't go into an agricultural burg to just be able to find some rolled oats for a horse now, I think. And the broad bran, that's, you know, you could probably could get bran, but it's like sawdust as opposed to the big broad bran we used to get. So feeding has moved on. Highlands. He talks a bit about Highlands as well. And I know there's a connection with Linnell with the Highland and Fell camp. Yes. He was talking about the Highlands and Fells in the deer forest and saying the Fell pony is more alive and his movements are quicker. He's balanced and therefore the horsemen of the shooting party prefer him as a good ride. I think probably the Fell pony is more agile than the Highland pony. The Highland pony tends to be heavier and a bit bigger. So the, the the Highland ponies are probably more suitable for carrying a stag, where the fell pony would be lighter. Could I say probably narrower? Not all fell ponies are narrow, but you know, back in the fifties, forties, and fifties, they were, I think, narrower. Um, so therefore, more comfortable ride. And are you selling stallions, if I've got this right, to the Spanish government? Oh yes, I actually came across a postcard. Um, the other day, um, written to him from a chap who'd just been to Mesopotamia looking at Arabs. And I now want to come and see you, Charlton. Your best ponies, please. And they were exported to Spain to, um, to the equivalent of the Ministry of Agriculture then. And I think they were importing to Spain all sorts of different breeds. And yeah, I, think, I think there were at least nine in one year that went. So there's somewhere somewhere in, in Spain, there's a little herd of Spanish ponies with a linnell fell cross going on. Oh, definitely. I'm trying to remember the, I should remember the name of the ponies, but in the Pyrenees, there is a native breed of ponies that look so like fells. Vivud G or Jean Ward. 
would know exactly what I'm talking about. They, Viv would, she's been over there and gathered them. So, the, yes, there are descendants, obviously, which are very obvious. And I think in the book he does comment that when he was there, he did go up and see the likeness. That's really interesting, fascinating. But he exported everywhere, Australia, Canada, America, as well as the continent. And, and, they, and these were all for riding ponies. I mean, again, right at the start, I didn't actually mention this, but there was something I saw. He was concentrating on weight-carrying riding ponies, so that would all fit. Yes. Let's move on to, on to Bob. Um, we have to talk about Bob. Of course. I can say I was very privileged to have spent some time talking with Bob and he is what I would recognise as being a proper gentleman, a proper country gentleman, chair of the Felpony Society. <sighs> Bob sadly passed away two years ago. So, so come on, let's, let's talk a bit about Bob and his involvement. And so I get like, come on, way back to when you met. What were you doing with the ponies there? Were you... Bob was very involved with the ponies as a teenager and right up to his 20s. Then um, national service and work, and um, he got married to his first wife. So really didn't have much involvement with the ponies over that time. He hunted a lot. I mean, he was the most exceptional rider. And it wasn't until father-in-law realised that I certainly had an interest in ponies and said, right, I'll give you the remains of the stud that he had left. Um, that we decided to rebuild the stud. And yes, he had great interest and he enjoyed renewing acquaintances and finding new acquaintances in the fell pony world. If you asked my girls what's, what was your dad's favourite hobby, they'd both look and say, talking. <laughs> he loved to talk and he loved to listen to people. And so it was, it, it was wonderful how we got back into... Um, ponies uh, with a great deal of help from Ailey Newell, Sylvia McCosh, Bill Potter and then solely other people too as um, we got to know them better and then progressed from there. So and you took on, this is the late 80s, you took on the Linnell Stud. Yes. And, and, and I've been there and it's beautiful, beautiful set up and like the old stalls, we had our pony in the stalls which we actually felt really privileged. I know a lot of people don't like the stalls but we <laughs> loved them, they were great. Uh, old, proper old school. So what sort of number of ponies did you take on and, uh, you know, what was the, the, the intention there to build it to build it up or were you just trying to bring back old bloodlines? I wanted to bring back old bloodlines, which wasn't easy at that point. Father-in-law, having th quite a few years before, having thought no one was interested, without telling anyone, had rung up Ronnie Mowbray one day, who was a big dealer, and he came and took six mares away and then gone and we managed to retrieve two ponies and then bought in several we including um we bought three from sarge noble's heltondale first dispersal sale and sort of rebuilt the herd from that but the two old lines that we bought back were very special that these are the ones that trace back to Flora, who was foaled in 1902. And what did you do about a stallion then? Because presumably you were having to literally put the herd back together, all of it. Yes, well, one of the ponies he did leave us was Lionel Romney Boy, um, who was the most wonderful stallion, who nicknamed Lord Little Ears, because he managed to get out of his bridle horse. You could, you could literally <laughs> plait his 
mane into the bridle and he'd still get loose. You couldn't really take him anywhere. And he was he was a wonderful chap. He, he lived till he was about 28, 29. But at the same time, we uh, bought Sledel Ruth from Sylvia McCosh, who was giving up breeding fell ponies. And Sylvia McCosh and Roy got together and talked. And before we brought her home, we took her to Henry Harrison at Sledale and she ran with um, Loonsdale Lucky Jim. And the progeny of that was Linnell Renard, who was our stallion for many years. He was the best temperament and an absolute star pony in, in every way. OK, so the right heads got together and came up with the goods yes. brilliant because it's a big it's, it's, a, it's a big thing you know making those decisions early on yes especially when I in in the breeding I felt very very new to the whole thing at that point you know I, I didn't e- didn't really know where Sledale was I probably didn't even know that Loonsdale was but but Carol Borland so that's how green I was at that time you know then you've got so much to learn and you learn learn a lot even now when bob was chairman fis raised its ugly head a full immunodeficiency syndrome i should point out for anybody that hadn't picked up on that and paul may had vet in cumberland had been suspicious that something was going on and at an annual general meeting derek nottingbelt from liverpool came to the meeting i was there i was at that meeting yeah and he proceeded to tell us that there'd be no fell ponies alive in the next century. You know, virtually by the year 2000, there would be nothing. We would have lost the breed. And that Bob worked on so hard and found it so difficult. And it, it became very controversial um, with so many different people's opinions. I can remember him feeling absolutely sick to the stomach because he had to go to a council meeting or was going to hold an AGM. And we were very lucky because the Animal Health Trust then stood in and came in and the FIS, we finally got the market test thanks to them and Liverpool. The Animal Health Trust um, considered it a welfare problem, which is where the finance really came from. But there was a lot of fundraising done to help sort the problem out but that was a very difficult time Uh, and I would say he would probably be exactly the right man for the job you know because he was a definite you know I know people would definitely look up to him and respect his 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 point of view yes yes and he quite prepared to listen to other people's opinions wonderful diplomat too I think that was one of his big achievements in the Felpony Society that he had that stage in time where I mean it was mind-boggling that this um, Felpony Foal syndrome, we'd been told, would devastate it. So what do you do? And we were very lucky that we had the team from Liverpool who came in and did all the research. I think there's there's probably a whole show on FIS because it's still it's still very relevant. Very um, relevant. I, I know we're, we're over that and we're hopefully not losing foals um, because people are breeding carefully. But it, uh, yeah, anyway, there's, a, there's another show. Here we are, we're at the favourite bit of the show. Everybody loves this bit where we're going to call the herd home. I'm going to step back from the microphone a little bit. Um, I'm going to call my ponies down for a bale of hay and then I'd like you to do just the same with your ponies. Okay, so I'll go first. Come on! 
If you like what you're hearing, why not come and join the herd at Patreon and help us continue to provide great content for free. As well as podcasts, we've already uploaded over an hour of Felpony films to our Felpony Adventures YouTube channel. So come and join the herd at patreon.com slash felpony. Sadly, Bob passed away a couple of years ago, and that leaves that leaves you as as the custodian now of the herd. All of a sudden, you've got all of that responsibility, haven't you? Yes, I suppose it. You know, it was. I do miss having someone to sort of discuss things with, but I'm lucky. I've got two daughters, who are both very interested. Jenny and Lucy are both very involved. Jenny more in the distance, and she is the secretary to the judges committee, and she's a judge. And Lucy much more hands on here at home. You mentioned the custodian. I, I do feel I am just custodian, guardian of the heritage to hand on, which is well on its way in the process. I feel quite passionate about encouraging the next generation to learn and hopefully learn and pass on. I made a note, something you'd said to me about it's so important for the next generation, letting them learn slowly through observation. Yes. Observation is is so important. We've just mentioned about sort of having a mentor and the patience and observation of someone handling a youngster. But it's also going to the shows, watching, observing from a distance, as well as partaking and then listening to old people. But then again, you can have a nine-year-old child standing beside you who will make an observation and you think, gosh, I never thought of that before. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> I wrote down here, you must give yourself time to improve your ponies and remember the fell pony has evolved over hundreds of years, which I thought was really, um, you know, that really stood out because, it, you know, you, we, we want to see the changes very quickly, don't we? You know, you can't wait for the next foal and, uh, you know, you, you hope to get a foal off that one. But actually... All these things are panning out of a much bigger timescales. Felpony, it's what Father always said, Felpony has evolved over hundreds of years. Heaven help us if we stop it, if it has to evolve to survive. If you think that at the beginning of the last century, ponies were used in all sorts of walks of life as work ponies, and now they are much more casual, they are pleasure written for pleasure far more. There's very few ponies who actually, what I call, work for their living, whether they snig. You would not see a pony pulling a milk float or a what have you now in in the street. So they don't work for their living. And fashion dictates too. They, they have changed a lot in the last 50, 60, 70 years. They have changed, and fashion has a lot to do with it. Talking about working ponies, uh, an old boy who I've not seen for some years now, actually, but I used to always chat with at the Stallion Show, Tom Kell, who's from the northeast, and he would tell me when he was a young lad, uh, he did a fish round with a fell pony and a little cart, and he would do forty miles every single day, uh, and that, I think that's what you mean. You know, those that that's a work pony, working eight hours a day, covering miles. That's exact exactly what I mean. Exactly what I mean. Be fit and hard and lean, I would think. That has sort of, I think, caused the sort of shape. People have 
looked for something different. And I think there's been certainly certain influences. There seems to be far more feather. Um, Father-in-law used to say, too much feather is nae good for man na beast. We seem to do have a lot of feather over feathered ponies. If you look at some of the old photos, going back to the beginning of the um, last century, ponies didn't have nearly so much feather. And then ponies shed feather during the, the summer, particularly the mares. You said that you do have to return, or you have over many years returned to the, the hill breeders for breeding stock to, to get that the, hard, the hardiness. Always. You know, go back um, when we had Lionel Reynard, I was very reluctant to let him go. And we um, lent him to Bill Potter. And then over the next few years, we had a number of stallions that Bill lent us. And, you know, the latest um, senior stallion I had was a Brackenbank pony by Merthwaite Look At Me. So, yes, returning. And I've got a young town end colt in the offing. So it's always sort of returning to the hill, probably more with the stallion than mares, but bearing in mind I've got lines Sledale, Hel- that go back to Sledale, Heltondale. They are Cumberland ponies. There's no getting away from it. We're a lowland stud on the wrong side of the Pennines. We have to return to the hill breeders for the hardiness, to keep the hardiness. It is so important. So let's talk about the performance trials. Linnell has a fantastic cross-country course. Tell me a little bit more about um, the performance trials and what, what you get up to at the Linnells. Well, performance trials came to us, I think, sort of, I think it was about 90, 1992. Now, bearing in mind, it had been, the performance trials had been run in Cumberland for quite a long time. Barry and Kath Allen were running it and they lost their sight. And they approached Bob because we had a small pony club course here at Linnell Wood. Previous to that, it had been very much a sort of handy pony course. And because Bob and I were involved in um, a British eventing horse trials here um, at the Linnells farm, we made it into so that it was the three phases, dressage, show jumping, and cross country. Initially, it was just bells, which we probably get 12 to 14 ponies. And then one year, I think we had only about six entries. And I said to Barry, we can't go on doing a course just for this number of ponies, because a cross country course is an enormous amount of work and a big expense. Then we introduced it to all native ponies. Um, with one section for fell ponies and then small breeds and large breeds. The idea was to get round and, and so if, if you had three stops at a fence, you went round and went on to the next one. So everyone got round. It, it was great fun. Everyone absolutely loved it because it was competitive but not competitive because the thing was that everyone completed and frequently people would come round, finish the course, all of a lather, can I go again? And they would, as they progressed round, because there were three heights and you could jump the little one, the middle one or the big one, they would find that they were jumping the bigger fence by the end and achieving what they didn't think they were going to achieve. And the fell ponies loved it. The fell ponies are wonderful jumpers. They could jump the width, 
They can jump the height, but just don't put the width and the height together because then they might struggle a bit. Oh, there you go. C- can you describe the course? What what kind of um, uh, obstacles and things are out there? It goes across a few fields, doesn't it? It takes a good few minutes yes. to get around that course. So it, it's not time. We used to have a small time section so that if everyone went clear over the big ones, we could differentiate, which had a slip rail where you had to get on and off to do the slip rail and a gate to do and jump. But the rest of it, you could nearly have just walked it if you really felt like it. And a lot of people, there's one steep hill that quite a lot of people did walk up. Water, so there was sort of woodland, farmland, stream to cross. Surprising how many people used to fall foul of the stream and couldn't get their ponies across. It's a proper course. I know this because, uh, hang on, we've got to go back now before COVID, haven't we? I think this must be four years ago now, probably. I came to actually not to the performance trials, but to the Felon Highland camp, which we should maybe chat about now, which is on this, the same venue. Tutors come in um, teaching all all different aspects over a long weekend. I'm presuming we've got this the right way around. The performance trials were first and the camp came out of the trials is that right no the camp didn't come out of the trials the camp came through the grant family a lot of people will know chris grant who rides highland ponies one of his mentors was mrs newell as well and they had a a dean pony for quite a long time and they started a very small highland camp at their place near throckley and invited three of us to go, three of us from here to go one year. And the following year, it moved here. And because Chris and his mum, Jan, are very involved in Highland Ponies, we did it so, right, we'll do half and half. So Chris and Jan, they are just so enthusiastic. You just, you can't stop them. So they organise it and we provide the premises. And it's gone on from there. We've got another one this year. We're hopefully getting back to a bit of normality. And so that is happening in the end of April, beginning of May this year. But it's wonderful to see two different breeds come together. And there's, you know, people talk and make friends out of their breed. Because I do think breeds, societies and breed enthusiasts should work together. And it's full of fun as well. You achieve more than you think. We get some very good instructors, very varied, and Chris is always thinking up an excellent entertainment. I think it's just having some time away with your pony that you can then concentrate on and meeting like-minded people. That's it, absolutely. Yeah, that's it. You also hosted the British Eventing Horse Trials for 25 years, is that right? I've written down. Yeah. Um, but the but the bit I wanted to talk about was that uh, the ponies, fell ponies stewarded at the event... And you had some quite famous riders on Little Fell Ponies, I believe. <laughs> yes, when, um, I can't remember how long ago it was. Bob um, invented in his younger years. In fact, he just didn't make it to Burley one year. His horse went lame. But he was always a keen follower. So we started Hexham Horse Trials, which is British eventing. And one of the talk right at the beginning was people used to have mounted stewards. So I said, right, they'll have to be fell ponies. And I think one year we had about 12 fell ponies. At the beginning, we had Ian Stark and Bob. At the end of the day, climbed on the two fell ponies, 
two of the fell ponies that were there. One was Judy Fairburn's Gibside Dolly and one was Little Mozart. And they proceeded to gallop off across the first jump and then gallop on to the second one as well. And then I think Bob fell off. (laughs) So what about the future for your herd? It is extremely hard at the moment. I think particularly in the situation the world is in at the moment, how you, you... you can't sort of visualise how it will go. I, Both girls are very keen to keep on the ponies in some way or other. I think one of their comments, we won't have so many, Mum. But the, the expense of keeping them and the time it takes, it will be interesting to see. But as you said way back in the start of this conversation, if you've, you know, you've, you've got a few mares and a stallion and you've got um, a few mares with a foal at foot and a few youngsters, and then if a few ponies you ride or drive, it doesn't take you long to get up to 15 or 20. No, no time at all. There's the rub, isn't it? If you if you want to be breeding ponies, you can do it on a smaller scale. Obviously, there are lots of people out there having a foal or a couple of foals, but um, t- to run a, a breeding herd, it's a big number. Yes, yeah, you think of a, a, you know, a day where you have with a farrier, you know, you've, you've probably got... At least, at the very least, one mob in, which is 10, <laughs> to all handle and, and, and deal with. Yes, it's, uh, you know it as well as me. So one of the th- interesting things, I think, about you guys, when I say you guys, I mean the last five generations and in including all of you around now, is... For me, I'm just fell ponies. That's all I know is fell ponies. If I go up to Appleby, I see gypsy cobs and I might see a few other fancy things. But until I've been to like your camp and actually got involved with the Northwest Driving Club this year, where there's lots of shapes and sizes of horses, all I know is fells. Um, but all the way back with Linnell, there's been fells and there's been dales. You pick up an eye for the different breeds. And I find it really interesting, actually, that quite a few of the fell breeders are also Dale's breeders. You know, what are these subtle differences between the two breeds? But you've got to think, going right back, the Dales were really not doing well. And I know somewhere in the notebook, or somewhere written, um, Grandpa Roy wrote, and now the best, the 10 best fell pony stallions are in the Dales stud book, because the Dales had to introduce fells into the Dales to, to, so that they could survive. So there, there is a keen likeness of both breeds because of that. I, I do think it's quite funny, actually, because uh, a week ago when we were just sort of having a chat about um, doing this podcast, I, I came across a, a really fantastic little pony and I sent you a picture of it. <laughs> it turned out to be a Dales, didn't it? <laughs> so, <laughs> you've mentioned Aileen Newell a couple of times as being um, a mentor to you guys. Ailey, we could virtually see Todridge from upstairs in our house. Ailey was introduced, used to breed Shetland ponies. And it was Grandpa Roy again who introduced her to fell ponies. And they lived only a few miles from the Linnells at a place called Shepherd's Dean, which is where the Dean prefix comes from. So Bob had known Ailey all his life. And so she started breeding fell ponies uh, with the encouragement and the mentorship of Grandpa Roy. And when Bob and I took on, I mean, she very much mentored and helped us. Um, she used to bring 
um, mares down to little Romney Boy and little Renard. Um, and then we used to take ponies up to little Reb, um, Dean Rebel. And then towards the end, when she wasn't coping, she rang me up and said, Sarah, I can't cope with the stallion. Will you have him? Didn't really want to take him at that time because I had too many, but did. And then um, I inherited him after she died. She lent me Dean Dainty Damsel to show, and I had some wonderful time on her. Um, and then I have a very strong line of that from that mare. Okay, it's all all making sense now. I all making sense because the other person that um, Grandpa Roy really mentored was Sylvia McCosh. So, for anybody who didn't know, Sylvia McCosh, um, this is the McCosh family of the Dale Main Estate, where the uh, Stallion Show and the Breed Show have been held for many years. Yes, Sylvia was a lovely lady, and she lost her first husband during the war. And I think Grandpa Roy really helped her along there and got her riding fell ponies, which she started the Dale Main Stud. It's a sad there's no ponies there now. We're winding up now, Sarah. It's been really, really interesting, fascinating. Uh, as ever, I've, I've learned so much, more little <laughs> pieces of jigsaw fitting into the puzzle. The last, last few minutes now, so I've got three quick questions for you. Um, one word answers, if you like. Uh, the first question is ride or drive? Has to be ride because I've never had much opportunity to drive. Yes, definitely ride. I'll take you out for a spin with my pair. <laughs> <laughs> that great, I'll hold you to that. Yeah, okay, that's good. Right, uh, second question. Best fell pony or line of fell ponies in the history of the breed? In the history of the breed? <clears throat> oh, dear me. Linnell Flighty. Oh, go on, tell me about him. Oh, it was my um, sister-in-law's pony that won a great deal um, in the 50s and early 60s. And Bob's, in 1955... At the National Pony Society show, my sister-in-law had appendicitis and Bob was 17 and he got the chance ride and swept the board on her. Yeah. And she was the dam of little Romney boys, so I've never traced her, but I'm sure she probably goes back to the flora of 1902 as well. Oh, that's, that's amazing. That's amazing. Um, OK, third question. Uh, yeah, this can be interesting, this one. Black, brown, bay or grey? Black. Yeah, I kind of knew you'd go for black. But I've had a few browns here, and I know everyone always says, and I think they're right, that the browns are the hardest. I've never seen a grey here, but going way back, one of the first stallions in the black book that was at the Linnells was a pony called Linnell Greybird, which was dark grey. And I think there were a few grey, but no, it's always been black here. With a few browns, few browns. Sarah, that's been absolutely amazing. Really lovely to talk to you. And hi to the whole family. And see you really soon. Thank you very much, Tom. Listening back to that conversation, what struck me was the importance of having someone as a mentor to help you and guide you. But also how relevant still the words are of those who have come before us. Roy's book, A Lifetime with Ponies, seems as relevant now as it was when it was written nearly 80 years ago. Thank you so much for joining me and listening to the show. If you liked it, please do me a favour and subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you really liked it, do me an even bigger favour and leave a review. It will really help us get the word out. 
huge thanks to my patrons who make all this possible. Charlie, Emma, Kate, Chris, Hannah, Alistair, Chris, Caroline, Kate, Jenny, Joe, Easy Horse, Willow, Rath, Mandy, Sue, Katie, Rue, Kalina, Matthew, Sue, Jane, Jess, Heather, Kim, Jennifer, Karen, Ruth, Timothy, Jennifer, Sarah, Helen, Misao, Samantha, Graham, Rick and Laurie and Dobby. Thank you so much. I am eternally grateful for your support. So why not come and join the Patreon herd and help us keep this podcast alive? Find us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and you'll be able to find more episodes wherever you listen to your favourite podcasts. I'm Tom Lloyd and you're listening to the Fell Pony Podcast. See you next time. Mm-hmm.